We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4 now. The last time I preached was out of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and onward, talking about great is the mystery of Christ revealed in the flesh. That was a wonderful message. It really blessed me to study it and preach it. I hope that you gained a new insight into who Christ is. Amen. Now today it's not going to be about Christ. It's going to have more to do probably with the Antichrist or a spirit that is against Christ. But when you recognize the Bible doesn't have chapters, you can see it's excuse me, flowing as one letter. So just kind of see where we're going. Go down to uh, chapter 3. Just kind of start there at that mystery, verse 16. It says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world. We know that's Jesus. We know this is his incarnation, the kenosis, the hypostatic union, him becoming the theanthropoc, uh, the anthropomorphous, the theoanthro. Theo is God, anthro is man, the theanthropos, God, man, nature. We know that's what's happening here. Amen, theology students. And then moving on to chapter 4, here we go. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith. I'm going to clear my throat one time really good. Will you just look at your neighbor and tell them how nice they look this afternoon? Come on, this 58 Chevy's got to rev up this morning. Amen. Notice how it goes from talking about who Christ is, sound doctrine and faith, even before that, the building and the establishing of the church on elders and deacons, now to this warning of apostasy. Watch how it flows. It's one letter, one heart. He's not, you know, we we haven't talked since two weeks ago. There's not a two-week break here. Paul is writing inspired by the Holy Ghost, right? This is who Jesus is. And then the Spirit says that in latter times some will abandon the faith. And follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected and if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Let's stop right here and begin to discuss what this is. The first thing that we hear is that the Spirit is speaking. We believe in a triune God who is equally God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but yet one Godhead. And so we know that when the Spirit is speaking, He's speaking on behalf of the Father and the Son. We know that He brings to us the message of Jesus. Jesus said to His disciples in Matthew, I mean in John 14, 15 and 16, that he had more things he had to say to them, but they didn't have the time to do it at that point. But the spirit of truth would come and reveal all things to them. Well, here is a fulfillment of that word that Jesus gave, that the spirit would come and reveal more things to them. Now, Jesus had tapped on this, that there would be a falling away in Matthew chapter 24, when he said that many will come in my name, claiming to be Christ, false prophets will arise and deceive many. But here now we see the specifics of it. Here's the specifics. It's going to happen in the latter times. Now, if we're not living in the last days, I don't know when the last days is. Now, some people might say, well, John Wesley thought he was living in the last days. Trust me, he did not err in thinking he was in the last days because what he did was prepared himself for Christ and tried to see what God was doing upon the earth. So even if we're going to be upon the earth for another 2,000 years, we are not in error today to think we are in the last days because by Peter's definition of Acts 2, the last day started with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it is a last day time period that comes, that starts at Pentecost and ends at the second coming. Are you with me? Now, if you want to ask me, eschatologically speaking, do I really feel if the last days were maybe two or three days, it, where do I see myself? I see us uh, in the last day of those days, plural. I see us then in the last hour of that last day within the last moments. Are you with me? Now, this is what the Bible says, though. It says, in the, last, in the later times, some will abandon the faith and foul deceiving spirits. Now, this is why we are not Calvinists. Now, there may be good Calvinists listening to us. SUM doesn't require you to be Armenians. But when it says abandon the faith, I'm not going to get into the Greek. I just don't have time to do that. To me, I believe that they once held the faith. 
it's not that they're just rejecting and fighting against it. These are people who once knew it, and now they are abandoning it. So I do believe, like Paul said in Second uh, Timothy, that Hymenius and Alexander, chapter 1, had shipwrecked their faith. I believe that coincides with abandoning your faith. Are you with me? So people can abandon their faith. So in the latter times, it says people abandon their faith. What time period is this? This is from the time period of Paul until our day. The latter times. That's what was considered the last times. They felt they were living in the last times. We feel we're living in the last times. Same thing. But now watch specifically. And they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The thing that we see here now is that there's different types of being wrong in the body of Christ or abandoning the faith. There's different ways that you can do this. I made a list of them. I want you to write them out quickly. There is being wrong or doing something wrong or false, and that is in Colossians 3.25 talking about wrongdoing. Now, wrongdoing becomes sin when it's not the righteousness that God's commanded you to do. But being wrong doesn't mean you abandon the faith. I can be wrong on different things. The Calvinism thing, I could be wrong, doesn't mean it's sin. Uh, If God reveals it to me and it's supposed to be obeyed and I don't, well, then it can be sin. But we can do things wrong in the body of Christ, excuse me, and still not abandon the faith. Are you with me? So we're not talking about people are following demons. We're not saying John Calvin, just to take the Calvinistic argument for a minute, though we're not a Calvinist, we're not saying this is a teaching of a demon. We're just saying it's wrong. It's false. It's not true. To move up the grade now to something higher, you go to a lie. Now, a lie is pretty dangerous here because the Bible does say all throughout the Bible that lying is against God's commands right off top. And that by continuing in lying, you will find your place in the lake of fire, Revelations 21.8. Now, what's the difference between being wrong and telling a lie? A being wrong is something that if you knew was right, you would change, but you don't know. That's why you're wrong. So think about it like this. Right now, I really believe Calvinism is wrong. I believe Arminianism, just to take that example, is right. Now, if I get to heaven and Jesus says, Joe, you were wrong, Calvinism was right, that wasn't a lie. Me telling people about Arminianism wasn't me lying to them, because to me, it was right. I was giving it my best with a clear conscience. Are you with me? You all getting quiet. I said, are you with me? Now, a lie means I would know that God would have spoke to me, and I would know that Calvinism is right, but I still teach Arminianism. Do you know what a lie is now? It's different from just being wrong. You see, if you knew 2 plus 2 was 4 when you were in first grade, you wouldn't have put 3. Well, since you put 3, does that mean you lied? Now, if I ask you what's 2 plus 2 and you say it's 6, you're lying to me because you know it's 4. Are you, are you getting this? We don't want to go around accusing people who are wrong and calling them liars and saying they're going to hell just because we think they're wrong. There's a different level here. That doesn't mean they're following teachings of demons. It just means they're wrong. People could be wrong about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean they're lying. Is everybody following me here? Well, now if you are a teacher of lies, the next thing that you become, the Bible says now, is a heretic. And heresies in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, known in the NIV as factions, King James heresies, it means the same thing, to think you and your group is right and everybody else is wrong in its literal sense, says that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So now watch how something that can be wrong becomes a lie, and then you become a heretic. And now liars are in danger of hell. I even think being wrong continually in something God is revealing to you could be sin and become something that would lead you to hell because the Bible says in another place all wrongdoing is sin. So if I eventually know I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be doing it, and I keep doing it, then my wrong could be intentional sin, and then sin can inherit the kingdom of God. So I have to live and being right. Now follow me here, specifically when we're talking about doctrine. Let's say somebody today hears the teaching about Calvinism, and they say, Well, you know, I think it's right. And uh, we teach them about Arminianism, and we give them scriptures. And let's say God would actually prick their heart and show them that the scriptures were teaching them exposed parts of Calvinism. They know it in their heart. So I'm going to kind of pick on Calvinists right here. 
So they know it in their heart that we've exposed some teachings, but now they're, they're not wanting to submit to the Word of God. They're now wrong, and they now know they're wrong. Now let's say they begin to start teaching the people, and when they start teaching this particular Scripture, they don't tell the truth of this Scripture. They actually go back to what they know <coughs> excuse me, is a lie because it's already been exposed to them. Now by teaching the lie continually... They can begin to develop a group of people, and in this group of people, they can begin to tell them that if they don't believe Calvinism, then they themselves are not going to heaven. That Calvinism is truly the only doctrine a Christian can believe and go to heaven. These are called hyper-Calvinists. Are you listening to me? At that point, that person has now become a liar and a heretic taking something as simply as Calvinism. Let me share with you again. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's say somebody begins to say that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Well, hold on now. We know that's not the truth. Just pray for me, somebody. Jesus, help me, Lord. Let's say they begin to say, well, you know what? You don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Well, we begin to share with them that you can have the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues. We show with them Scripture. But let's say that they willingly reject that Scripture. They willingly reject it but keep on teaching it. This happened in the time of Pena, uh, when Azusa Street happened. People who knew the Trinitarian belief, who knew you could have the Holy Spirit, and still not speak in tongues, turned from God and that teaching and began to teach that God was monomodalistic, that there was only one person in God revealing in different manifestations, not three persons. This is called modalism. And then people told them this teaching is false, but they kept teaching it anyways. They began then to become liars. Then they went as so far as now to say, that in, unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. What have they now become? A heretic. You're not following me. My, my throat may be being used of the devil right now, but God is still in this place. Amen. I'm just teasing. There's no devil in my throat, but I wish I could cough it out right now. Listen to me. Don't miss what I'm teaching you right here. You can be wrong, but still go to heaven. If you live in wrongdoing and you become a liar, you're in danger of hell. You teach your lies, you now are a heretic, and you now are going to be influenced by demons and spirits that will keep people from knowing the truth through your demonic teaching. Demons can influence hyper-Calvinism. Demons can influence modalism. Demons can influence this type of thing. That's how innocently it can happen in your life. Now, the last thing as you become, is a hypocrite, what you see in this context right here, because the truth is being revealed to you, you're rejecting it, you're teaching it as if it were truth, you've now separated yourself from the body of Christ, and now you're calling yourself a Christian, and by your own behavior you're denying Christ, because Christ does not live with wrongdoing, lies, and her- heretical teachings. And so by saying you are a Christian, you are putting on a mask and acting as a hypocrite. So what is the point of this right now? This is just an introduction. I need some help getting through this message today. The point of this is that you as preachers better take what you're teaching very seriously. The Bible says in the book of James not to take teaching. The teachers ought not to take themselves as a teacher lightly. Not many among you ought to become teachers because we will be judged more severely. I can be wrong on things. If I stay humble and teachable, I can learn more about Christ and his doctrine as I grow in the body of Christ. So I ought to stay in that place. The, the, the furthest I'll ever go down this road is that I may be wrong about some things. I may be wrong. I may be wrong about the rapture. I, I may be wrong about uh, the, 
the evidence of speaking in tongues is for everybody who receives the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. I may be wrong on some of those things. I should go through Christianity open and willing to learn about those peripheral issues. We get into the understanding that the early church made creeds, and these creeds became essential for our faith. And we even see it in First, uh, in first Timothy chapter 3, 16 and onward, when he declares who Jesus is. These were early creeds, the Corpus Christi in Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis, the doctrine where it says he humbled himself, he was fully a God, but then became fully man. These are creeds. We hold to these creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The Council of Chalcedon that clarified who Christ was in his nature. The Athanasian Creed, these are the major creeds. But the Bible says that people will turn from these. And do we see it in our own day? Yes, hyper-Calvinism was one. Now, to be fair, what would be the one that Arminius would go into? Greasy grace. People now on TV don't even want to say the word sin. They don't even want to teach that there is a hell. It's becoming the heir of universalism. It's so good, my friends, here today, because this is what he does on the Internet. It's unbelievable. No coincidence that you showed up on this day. I mean, of all the messages, this is why we do apologetics. So what I want you to do is be careful with your teachings. I want you to be careful that what you stand on a hill and die for is the essentials. Write these down if you don't have them. The essentials is the Bible. 66 books, Genesis to Revelations. One God, monotheism, revealed in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That would be your third doctrine. The fourth one was Jesus was fully God and is fully man. The fifth one would be salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. We don't believe in a works. The sixth one would we believe in the final judgment of eternal hellfire and damnation for those who reject Christ, an eternal place of bliss and heavenly pleasures for those who accept Christ. Those are the foundations of truth. Those are the creeds. That's what they're based upon. Knowing what the Word of God is. These, uh, these early church fathers went through the canon, the standard uh, of finding what the words of our apostles were. They standardized them for us. They passed them on down. When the Roman Catholic Church went back into the time of the Maccabees before even the New Testament and added books to it, we as the Reformers had to fight away from this. And at the point of, our, uh, of suffering, Huss and John Huss being, uh, being persecuted and Tyndale, and, and these men who suffered to get it back on track. Are you listening? Now, what are some of the peripheral views? What are some of the peripheral views? Well, eschatology, pre-trib, post-trib, how is the, the rapture going to happen? Spiritual gifts, baptism of the Holy Spirit, as much as I believe in them and practice them. Peripheral issues, communion and baptism, you know, it's even been seen in early church history that some believed in transubstantiation. As much as I disagree with it, there was there was a lot of argument. What what was it literally? What was it to them? Baptism, baptism, not so much of submersion. We believe we can see that, but also in the early church they went to baptism of infants. And I have it here, and I'm going to go through this in just a moment because this is in the introduction. I got to get to the message because I just want to apply it to you. Because in the message itself, it's not going to apply to you in this part. But I want to apply it to you now, okay? Infant baptism was one of the first things they began to do that we don't do anymore. And it was around 200 AD they started baptizing of the babies. These are peripheral views. If somebody baptized a baby, I don't think they're a heretic, a liar on their way to hell. Do you get where I'm coming from now? If someone says, I don't believe in speaking in tongues, I don't say they're a liar, a hypocrite, a heretic on their way to hell. That is the grace that we should show each other. These are the peripheral views. That is what we say we have an open hand of theology about. These could change. We could exchange these for other understandings. There may be a better understanding of the end times than we have now. The Jews had about 4,000 years of history to prepare themselves for the first coming of Christ, and they didn't even recognize him when he walked among them. Like he was hitting them right on the head, and they didn't even know who he was. We've had 2,000 years, and we may have this whole thing backwards. Amen? One thing that I do know is he's not coming as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king on a horse with a sword in his hand, and he will set this place in order. I do know that. Amen? And I'm on that train. Praise God. 
Now, let's make this message what Paul meant it to be. I'm going to give you two literal uh, interpretations. Now, I gave you the application before the interpretation because I knew I might get lost in the application because there's so much here, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Today's message, by the way, is Doctrines of Demons. I didn't even give you a title. Forgive me. Doctrines of Demons. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I don't think these are Christians who follow peripheral things. I do believe peripheral things, if they're continued in and it becomes an isolation of the body of Christ, it could lead to heresy, it could lead to lying and a hypocritical living, but I don't believe the peripheral issues alone. This is a talking about abandoning of the faith, which I just gave you as the fundamentals. Verse 2, such teaching come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain food which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Who do I believe this is talking about? If you think you know who I'm going to spend the rest of today's message talking about, which I may have three minutes left, I don't know, depends how long we go, raise your hand if you think you know who I'm going to talk about for the next few moments. He says the Jewish people, no, they wouldn't have accepted the faith. Go ahead. Jehovah Witnesses would not even be close to this. That's okay. Islam would be second on my list. What do you think? Catholicism, get it up for the visitor, getting it right apologetic man in nature. He knew where I was going because I believe that they're, the Jehovah Witnesses are not even close to this time period and they're not even uh, doing all of these things. As far as I know, Jehovah Witnesses don't order you to abstain from food as much as I've studied them. And I don't know them to forbid to marry in any way other than just to marry within their cult, which Christians say to marry another Christian. So that wouldn't even apply. Uh, Islam comes in a close second. I do believe Islam can be applied allegorically to it. I don't believe there's anything wrong with allegorical analogies, applying something to another and taking it allegorically. And that just basically means you find the principles and then you find them in other people's lives. But it's not the literal interpretation. A lot of times people get beat up these days for preaching allegorically. Excuse me, Brother Glenn preaches allegorically. He says this is a snake. You see it in the book of Acts, and then he tells you about ten different snakes. Well, are those ten different snakes found in the book of Acts? Did it mention any of those snakes? No. Did it mention that when the snake bit Paul, that it had anything to do with a spiritual application to Paul's life? Was it not literally just a physical snake biting his arm? But what... What Glenn does is he says, snakes represent this. When he says the word represent this, he is now going into an allegorical form of preaching. Is is allegorizing a false way of preaching? Absolutely not. I don't believe that. Some people beat up those who do. I'm teaching exegetically, and I say it's okay. So how can they mess with me? Amen? Because the people who say allegorical preaching, they only preach that exegetically, and I'm doing it, and I'm saying allegorizing is okay. Paul allegorized. Paul, Paul, and they say Paul maybe had permission to allegorize because he was writing the Bible. But yet he still did it, and so it's a pattern. He allegorized in Romans uh, chapter 9, or excuse me, in Galatians, when he said that Mount Sinai represents this, Hagar, and then uh, the New Jerusalem represents this, Sarah. And I think I'm getting those two mixed up, but you'll see he uses the word represents, and he talks about something that is never found in Scripture alone. Since you're looking at me crazy, turn there now. Go to Galatians, and I'll show you. Totally off subject, praise God. But just to defend my man, Glenn, if you guys are thinking I'm messing with him now, about how allegorizing, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. As long as you have sound theology. And allegory, allegorizing from the preacher can never become doctrine. It's only for the purpose of applying the word of God. And even those who say they don't do it, do it all of the time. Because anytime you take a word from the Bible, then you give an example, you're given an allegory. 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 Thank you, Lord, for helping me pronounce this word. Today is just one of those days where God just humbles me as a preacher. I am so humbled right now. You know, you rely upon your voice. You think, you know, like I'm like some uh, Ben-Hur up here or something. You know what I'm saying? I'm something impressive with my voice. I was just at City Lights, and they talked about how nice my voice was. And then now my voice is totally shot. Praise God. Okay, let's go to, uh, I believe it's Galatians chapter 3, 421. Thank you. Here it is. 
4.21. Tell me what you think. Uh, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by the free. His son by the slave woman was born the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. These things may be taken, what? What's the word there? Figuratively, allegorically. He does it. Now, you've never heard this interpretation of this other than what he's telling you. Now, why does his become doctrine? Because he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the practice of algorizing to make a point is okay as long as you're not making doctrine out of it. Because you're not inspired. That's the difference. Do you get it? One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai and Arabia, corresponds to the present children of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem that is above, talking about heavenly Jerusalem, represents Sarah. So I was right. I had it right. Amen. So the idea is, today, if I was to now make an allegory, uh, to allegorize, I could say, you know, Cain stands for the backslidden church, and Abel stands <clears throat> for the righteous church. See, I just made an allegory. Could somebody say that word for me? Allegory. Allegory. Thank you, Jesus. Allegory. 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 I feel like I am like this right now. I feel like I should just hand the mic to my wife, sit down, open my Bible, get out my highlighter. Allegory. Allegory. I could say that, just like how he did. He said, here's two women, now they represent two covenants. I could say Cain and Abel, they represent two churches, the backslidden and the righteous church. The righteous church does what God wants. The backslidden church is jealous of that and only gives God halfway. And ultimately, out of jealousy, the backslidden church wants to conquer and take over the righteous church. I just made an allegory. Can that now become a doctrine? Can I say... That when the Holy Spirit wrote that passage of Scripture, that is exactly what he meant from that. No, that is when people who preach allegorically get into trouble because they act like every spiritual revelation they get to preach on is like some new truth that should be equal to Scripture. And that's why they get themselves in trouble and they sell a book and they tell you, if you don't get this, you don't have the true knowledge of God. And that leads then into heresy because now they're teaching something that the Bible itself did not teach. But is preaching with allegory wrong? No. Is it wrong for Glenn to say when, when the serpent bit the hand of, uh, of Paul, this represents, represents, figuratively speaking, that when you're doing righteous things for God, attacks come upon your life. And here's the different attacks that snakes have upon your life. And here's how it speaks to your spiritual life. No, because he spoke in allegory. Allegory. That is the difference. Is everybody with me? That has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 4, though. Can we go back there? Can I go back to preaching? Amen. Can you then pray for me? Or just thank God after this and just say, Lord, thank you for keeping them humble. Thank you, Lord. I know my pastor's being kept humble. Lord, you know how to do it. Let's now talk about the Roman Catholic Church because I don't know how we went from that to allegory, but I just wanted to allegory. But there we go. Now, let me tell you, oh, I'm going to tell you why. Because Islam, thank you, Jesus, would have been number two that I would apply this to, but I would have to do it allegorically. There we go. There, there's, the, there's the connection point. I have a book back there on Islam, and, and what is the connection points there? The connection point would be that deceiving spirits, the angel Gabriel, came to Muhammad in the cave and lied to him. But I don't believe that he was ever in the faith, so he wasn't abandoning anything. I do believe from the beginning he was a pagan. So this couldn't be somebody doing the right thing, then being deceived by a spirit and now doing the wrong thing. But I could apply it allegorically because he was deceived by a spirit. Do you, do you get where I'm coming from? They do forbid to eat certain foods. They do forbid their women to marry non-Muslims, but that would be stretching again. But I could talk about the marriages going the opposite way to multiple marriages, which Paul tells us not to do. But to push it all into this context, I would be having to do it allegorically, not literally. 
Not speaking directly from the passage itself. So I was just correcting you guys. It wouldn't be the Jewish people because the, the Jewish people had not received the faith. If they did, they would become Christians. And then something after that, we, we don't really have another occult of Judaism that came out. Maybe Gnosticism, but once again, it wouldn't fit. Jehovah Witnesses don't forbid to eat food. Islam would be the closest to it if you look at it allegorically. But literally, it can only be responding to what I believe is one group of people. The Roman Catholics. Now, where do I get this from? Well, let's just go through it right here, and then we'll talk a little about church history. And you know we wrote a book on this as well. I wrote a book that you could take a look to help summarize the history of the Christian church. It says that in latter times some will abandon the faith. If you look at the time of Paul being around 70 A.D., latter times would be within the next few hundred years even in his estimate. And he says that what will happen is they will abandon the faith. Well, when you study this, the Christian church history, you have to know that Roman Catholicism comes out of this. It isn't the history of Roman Catholicism separated from the history of the Christian church. As much as I would like to expose the horror of Babylon, which I believe that's what the Catholic Church is in Revelations, and not give her the credit of being with us, I can't do that honestly. She was with us. The Catholic Church was a part of us. We were Catholic. You look at the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. They were us. And the more I studied it in seminary and the more I've heard lectures on it, it's hard to even draw the line of when it starts and when the, good, when the bad guys take over and when the good guys get pushed down. People argue about which one was the bad guy. I stop at around Augustine. But people can go as far as St. Gregory. People can go even further than that. And they can go to Francis of Assisi. People will take it all the way up into the 11th, 12th, 13th century. And they'll say, really, 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 Catholicism really, really, really wasn't there until in the last two or 300 years before the Reformation. And right at that time, before the Reformation, that's when you see John Huss and all these guys rising up. So everybody has a different definition because it's intertwined. Let me give it to you in seed form here. You have the apostles. They live and die. The early church fathers, the patristic fathers is what we call them. The disciples of the disciples took their writings. They quoted them. If we only had the patristic fathers' writings, we could put together the entire New Testament, say, except for about 17 verses. That's how awesome they were in quoting the Bible. Some of them write them down. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp. These men were awesome. These were the disciples of the first disciples. Irenaeus came a little bit later, but they're right, right there. Ignatius is my favorite. He's a disciple of John. Read some of his letters on his way to martyrdom. Well, after the disciples of the disciples had, what we began to see was a formalization of the church and what we would now know as bishops and their presbytery, their elders, and the districts they worked in. The succession of bishops was not only for Rome, it was for all churches, meaning if Paul planted a church with Timothy in Ephesus, after Timothy died, who takes that church? Well, it looks like Ignatius came and took that church because we have his letter to the Ephesians. Well, after Ignatius, who took that church? Well, there's a succession now of the bishops, and the bishops are overseeing the elders who are ruling in the house churches, which the ruling of the elders is called the presbytery. Are you with me? After a time, and by the way, they're suffering persecution, because after 98, up until 90 AD, 30 to 90 AD, it was the Jews that were doing most of the persecution, then bringing them to Roman courts. But after 90 AD, when Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed, then it was the Roman government trying to push them down, all the way up until what we believe is the conversion of Constantine around 314 AD. So from around 90 to 314, the greatest persecution is the Roman church. And what you have happening is you have the succession of the bishops. One to another. One to another. Then, as they're doing that, the Bible is being formalized. The oldest, uh, the oldest manuscript we have of the entire New Testament is the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Alexandrius, which is now in the Vatican around that time, 4th century, 300 A.D., and the most earliest canon that we have is the Mercurian canon, which has almost all of the books of the New Testament. That's around 200 A.D. So if you look from the time of the last apostle dying, John, around 90 A.D., 
to the Maturian canon around 100. We already basically formalized the books. And then the oldest manuscript we have of the entire New Testament is just a few hundred years later. So they knew what was already the scriptures. Some people think the scriptures were formalized. Some, some foolishly will even say it by King James in the time England split away from the Catholic Church, which is totally a lie. And then some, like the Jehovah Witness and other cults, will say it was done at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. But the formalization of your canon was around 120 A.D., just about 30 years after the Apostle John. At this point, the apostles die. The disciples of the disciples are writing. And then they're formalizing the New Testament. The succession of the bishops is happening, and then they begin to have councils within their own regions to distinguish what is truth and what is heresy, what is the word of God, what is not the word of God. And by the time of 325 A.D., they have understood what it is that they call their formalized faith, and we believe that the Apostles' Creed was formalized during this time and that they knew the main doctrines I just said to you. What happened at 325 A.D. was that the Roman Empire, or the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was pagan, had a vision of a cross being held up over a battlefield, and he won the battle, and he made it into an emblem, and he and he then went out and fulfilled kind of like that prophecy, that dream, and then he won a battle, and then he made Rome a Christian nation. At this point, he calls a council, which we call now one of the major first councils, of all of these bishops coming together. When these bishops came together. They were there to resolve one issue, not many issues. They weren't there to decide the canon. They were, decide, they were there to decide one issue. Was Christ fully divine or was he a second created being? They were there to solve the issue of Arianism that was taught by Arius, that, 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 that Jesus was a second created being of the Father, not equal with the Father. That was the only reason why they went there. Everybody can suppose they're what they want. They can say Constantine wanted to make a united church. They can say Constantine wanted there to be one Bible. They can say all of those. That is all, that is all speculation and at best speculation, and most of the time it's just ignorance. When these bishops got there, many of them had themselves the scars of persecution. They were not going to be bought by a Roman government. They were coming there to resolve an issue based on an emperor's conversion. Some people say, well, that's when the Pope offered the popetry came. That is a lie. The Pope did not start until well into the five, uh, 600. The first idea that we see of the Pope came in 607 with Boniface III. So from the time of the Council of Nicaea, 325 to 600, you can't even say that was the start of the Catholic Church. But we know that deceiving spirits began to creep in because we begin to see that soon after that, praying to saints in 379 began to become popularized. And the position of Mary, who even in the early church was given, um, I don't want to say exaltation, but more respect than most of us Protestants do, that she was given a lot of respect in the early church, but it wasn't until that time that they actually started making prayers and supplications, 379. So what do you see? Teachings that are abandoning the faith. We also see that they weren't able to marry. We see this beginning to happen with the clergy, but not till many years later. The um, celibacy of the clergy action, actually did not happen until around 1000 A.D. with Pope Gregory VII. So do you know that priests could marry all the way up until 1000 A.D.? But what do we see? Come on, look at this. In the latter times, people will abandon the faith. Well, we know there's only one meter between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So we see them starting to add saints in that just a few years after these councils. And it says they're going to teach things through hypocritical liars. During this time, the bishops did start to struggle for who's the bishop of the bishops. They did begin to fight over this. And then they became hypocrites because there became such an influx of new con converts from Rome becoming a Christian nation that they now had so many believers in their churches that pagan temples were being renovated into churches. And this is where they believe, because it only happened a few years later, 379, that saints and Mary got exalted because they had all of these statues and they're saying, what do we do with them? And so hypocritical liars... This is one theory. This is not speculation. This is a theory by historians that they began to say, well, let's call Hercules Peter. And let's call this God 
Paul, and let's call this one. And they began to actually use the same statues. And let's call the goddess, which they always had a goddess, goddess of Diana for the Ephesians. Uh, they always had a goddess. But they said, let's call this goddess Mary. And they literally transformed the Catholic churches, I mean the, the pagan churches and the, and the Christian churches, and many of these statues actually changed names. I could get into things like Easter because that became ordained at that time. And some people say that it had a lot to do with pagan origins. But we know that Easter, even though it could have uh, times back to Estar, the goddess of fertility, we know that they still kept the date during the time of Passover. So we're not going to think wrong of that right now. But Christmas would be, would be something you would want to be careful with. My wife and I don't celebrate Christmas for these reasons, but we give you liberty to do it here if, if you feel that Christ allows you to celebrate Christ's birth. Amen? If, if you feel that by the Spirit. But it was during these times that the, that the formulation of Catholic doctrines coincided with paganism. So there is the beginning of hypocritical liars. Then you go on down to the time of where it says they will forbid meats. At a certain point in the Catholic Church, around the time of 519, Lent began to be developed that they would now celebrate... After Easter, or partaking, maybe not celebrates the right word, but they would have 40 days of abstaining from meat and food and dairy products. And then that they, or excuse me, they would have Fat Tuesday because we're going to Mardi Gras. They, they would have, the, the pagans, Mardi Gras, had a day of celebrating Bacchus, the, the god of prosperity, and they would glutton themselves. And so the Catholic Church took this festival and said, now eat and drink and do everything you want on this day, because here comes the 40 days of Lent, abstaining from meat and dairy products until Easter. Does that make sense? you understand what Lent is? Lent is between Fat Tuesday, the day of gluttony and celebration, 40 days until Easter. So do we see this being fulfilled right here? The Spirit says in the latter times, some will abandon the faith. Did some in the Christian church abandon the faith? Was everybody doing this, though? No. We have reason to believe as much as sometimes we, we kind of look at the monks and we look at these guys with the funny hairdos, friar tucking these people, you know, from Robin Hood. One of the best things that happened was the monastic movement because when all of this was pushing into the churches and all of this was happening in the major city of Rome and Rome was becoming now the capital of the church, a lot of these monks went out into the places of the desert into mountains to pray and seek God. They became very spiritual. Some of them were a little kooky, but many of them became very spiritual. You see during this time that, that some will teach such, verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars. These men knew better. They knew better, especially by 327. They knew that a few years after the Council of Nicaea, excuse me, 379, they knew that they were not supposed to be praying to Mary and saints. They knew that. They were taught better than that. But they had been deceived. They had been deceived. They had no idea what was going to come their way after that. They had no idea that people in our day would pray more to Mary than they do to Jesus that they would pray more to saints. They had no idea by, by making these saints the way they did that they would start up this whole idea of, can, uh, of saintizing people that would actually have saints. And we can go back in history and show you people that were barbarous, but they were made saints and that popes were barbarous. They had no idea by doing these things what they were actually bringing upon the Christian church. And I would actually say that Islam is a product of Catholicism. That because Catholicism so oppressed and so did things wrong by this time around the 500s, by the 600s, Islam would, would breed its content towards the West and do so much damage and create these holy wars that lasted for hundreds of years because Catholicism was so wrong. And I would go so far as to say that the problems that we had with Nazi Germany hating the Jews and anti-Semitism did start with the these people hating the Jews, the Catholics, Roman Catholicism eventually turned on the Jews and called them the murderers of Christ. And some of the first inquisitions, the torturings, the trying to make them to renounce their belief was with Jewish people. So what would you say? Why do I say Roman Catholicism is the whore of Babylon? Because not only did she kill the Christians, and I can, I'm getting a little off subject here, into the Great Inquisition. Not only does she do all of that, but she has the blood of the Jewish people, the blood of the Middle Eastern people of the Holy Wars, all of this blood in her cup. And she at one time made the nations fat because because of her kind of centralizing Rome and because of her centralizing and doing this and ruling over nations, she became rich. Rome became its, and still is today considered its own government. And they never knew that by turning from the faith those things would happen. 
And the Bible says that their consciousness became seared as with a hot iron. If I take an iron to your skin right now and I sear it, your pain cells will be seared. They won't be there. Your pain cells are just at a certain layer of your skin. I can now touch your skin and you won't feel it anymore. These men, some of them, who had laid down their life or had friends that laid down their life as martyrs, Within these next few years, from the Council of Nicaea to around 400 A.D., those next few years, so many of them compromised for power, for money. They compromised their teachings. They compromised their churches. They became hypocrites. They knew better. And their consciences were seared that they didn't even feel the conviction of the Lord anymore. So when we talk about Catholicism or you hear a cult talk about it, well, that trinity comes from Catholicism. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't know what happened. This is what happened. Good people were serving God, were going after God. They were trying to unify the church. They were setting up councils because even during this time was the Council of Chalcedon, which set in order even more so the nature of Christ, which we have. Around 450, the Council of Chalcedon. But yet during this time, people were getting seared. By the love of money, which was becoming a root of evil to them. They were becoming seared by the praise of people. And could it happen again today? I think it does happen. That's why I started off with that application to you because I knew I wouldn't have time. I mean, I'm only tapping on it right now. If you're not careful with Christ's church, you could become the Laodicean church. If you don't stay true to the doctrines that God puts in your life, you could cause apostasy in your very own church. Do I think that some of these pastors, and I'll just name one by name because I am concerned. Do I think Joel Osteen knew that when he began to talk the way he did and how his father did? Do I think he knows even the ramifications of what he's saying? He has no idea. But if people talk the way he does, if people deny the gospel the way he does, it will be an apostasy to a generation of his followers. Tens of thousands and people say they know him. People say that he is a Christian, that he does love the Lord. I know somebody who knows him as a best friend. He's on the board of his ministry. And he says he is all of a Christian that you would say that he is. But, my friends, his conscience could be getting seared right now by a hot iron for pleasing people. And he himself not even know it anymore because the conviction gets so dull. I don't believe he started off demon-possessed saying, I'm going to lead a generation of people to hell. I believe it started just by him fulfilling his father's vision. His father was a Baptist who became a Baptist who preached the gospel. But over time, it begins to divert. And it begins to, things come in. Temptations. Ted Haggard. Homosexuality. And this is what happened in the Catholic Church. They forbid to marry. The priests couldn't marry. They couldn't receive food. And then the Bible says in verse 6, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. If I bring this up to you, the Bible says, I can teach you to be a good minister by you holding to the truth. Learn. From what Roman Catholicism did. There were good people back there. And there was good people all throughout it. But they as a whole. As a whole. Turned from God. Today now Methodism. Ordains homosexuality. Could you imagine John Wesley. The preacher of righteousness. Seeing this. But what happened. They turned from it. And their consciences became seared. Verse 7. Have nothing to do. With godless myths, an old wives' tale, rather train yourselves to be godly. The Alexandrian school, the school of the East, began to become so consumed with allegorical preaching that their mythology, that their teachings became so far out there that it helped feed a lot of the bad theology of the Roman Catholic Church. If you ask people today to show you, because they eventually ended up believing just as late, I mean, as, as much as close to our lifetime, maybe your parents were around, in the 1900s, in 1954, they said, it's 1950, they said that Mary's body went to heaven like Jesus. And then in 1954, just to kind of, you know, finish it off, they said that Mary was born a virgin, born in a virgin birth as well. 
And if you ask them today, because we debated with them online, and you can find our debate, go to the Sermon Player Push debate, and you can see us debating Catholics. If you would ask them right now, you would say, well, where is the doctrine of the assumption of Mary, Mary going to heaven? They'll give you an allegorical interpretation of Revelations when it says the woman in the wilderness goes up to the skies and she's taken away by the angels. They'll give you the allegorical interpretation and say that was her ascending to heaven. So why did I have to get an allegory? Because it is okay when you're applying Scripture to life, but never for doctrine. Can you see how you could turn to a preacher of myth? Well, my God wouldn't send a homosexual to hell. That's right your God wouldn't do that because he doesn't exist. He's a myth. Well, my God wouldn't do this. That's right because you're believing in a myth. The Bible says it has nothing to do with godless myths. Well, I believe that, you know, all, you know, all, the, all the good people of other religions, they get to go to heaven because I just, I just believe it. That's a myth. That is not the gospel truth. No one, no one can come to the Father except by Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Old wives' tales. The old wives' tales. You can see them all throughout the Roman Catholic Church, even to this day. Why is it the Roman Catholic Church has all this superstition? You know some of you were brought up Roman Catholic. Think about some of the superstition that Roman Catholic people believe even today. About full moons, stepping on cracks, walking underneath, all of these things. It, 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 it thrives in the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because it's a place of superstition. They allow the Latino people to keep the Day of the Dead and to coincide it with All Saints Day. They allowed Hallowed Eve, Halloween, to be developed among the Latinos who already had a Day of the Dead. As a matter of fact, when we go to India, they, oh, they, the Catholics love India because all India has is idols and pagan sanctuaries. Am I right, my brother? You, you go to India, it, it's just one among many. Why? Because they adopt all of those superstitions and beliefs and the crazier the culture is, the crazier the Roman Catholic Church is there. That's why uh, it, when the pilgrims came, they, they wouldn't even let Catholics come. It was illegal to be a Roman Catholic in some of our colonies, honestly. They didn't want nothing to do with it. They didn't, the founding fathers didn't even celebrate Christmas. Y'all looking at me crazy. Read the, read the history of the pilgrims and how we founded this nation. Now, was it right? No. How we persecuted them? No. But, but I'm telling you, that's where it came from. Because they knew how superstitious. They even counted it as witchcraft, some of the things that they would do. It's no coincidence that today Roman Catholics find it so easy to believe in astrology because it all ties together. It's all a part of this uh, uh, anti-Bible, allegorical idea, spiritism. It fits in perfectly. In the south where I was from, voodoo uh, uh, slaves coming together with Catholic people, the, the Creole people, developing Santeria. This idea of voodooism with the Catholic Church, I saw it in New Orleans. I went into a church in New Orleans where they were smoking weed, doing incantations, and had a picture of the Virgin Mary up there and were about ready to take communion. And if that don't freak you out, I don't know what will. She was upstairs our building. I was renting the church downstairs. She had a house church upstairs. Literally, our church was here. And, and I wish I could say I was spiritual and I felt something, but I didn't. And she just invited us to go over there. And I knew she was a little kooky because she was acting weird. So we come up in there. They're doing like this hold-down Creole-style music. Old dudes, no, old guys smoking weed, puffing on it. They've got all of this altar stuff, food on the altar, saints all over the altar. And they're chanting all over the place. Centuria, I saw it for myself. Catholicism and witchcraft mixed together. Have nothing to do with godless myths, wives' tales. Train yourself to be godly. I've already missed the timeline. We're just going to preach a little bit now. Amen? Train yourself to be godly. Well, Pastor, I need you to train me. I've done my training right now. You've gotten the Word. You've gotten the Word today. It's feeding your soul. But now you've got to train yourself. You've got to do your exercises. How can we train ourselves to be godly? It's the same thing that they did. The apostles' teaching, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. Acts 2, 42 through 47. That's how you train yourself. Stay in the Word of God. You'll experience error in your life. 
I remember sitting down with a Jehovah Witness for the first time. I didn't know what a Jehovah Witness was, but I could spot his air because I've been training myself in the Word of God. There are so many new false teachings out there. You will meet I, my wife and I. If we didn't do discipleship in this church, this church would be a mess like everybody else's. And I'm not saying we're the only one. I'm just saying there's a lot of mess in the church. George Barna says only two out of ten even disciple. You know what my wife and I found out discipling? We had a woman going downtown to a guru who believed that was the next incarnation of Christ, but she was a a tongue-talking believer in our church because she believed that Jesus was the Christ of his time. No contradiction. Y'all ain't listening to me. She said Christ was was the incarnation of, of his time. His teachings aren't to be taken as scripture. The experiences that he said you should have by the apostles is supposed to be for today. But Saint-Man, S-A-N-M-A-T, is now the incarnation of Christ among us. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. I was out at Mardi Gras. They were handing out flyers for a commune. Handing out flyers. Come on and join our commune. You don't think those things exist anymore? They're out there. You don't think Jonestown still They are still out there. I called up that, that flyer. I said, hey, man, I'm interested in this. I want you to tell me what it is. And I wasn't lying. I, didn't, I wasn't interested in going. I was just interested in knowing what it is. And they told me what it was. I said, man, do you, do you guys have sex out there? Oh, yeah, we have sex, man. You can have it any way you like, homosexual, bisexual. Then I said at the end, I said, man, I'm a pastor. I'm a man of God. I want to tell you something. Man, you are in something right now that will damn your soul to hell. You need to get out of this thing. But he told me just as it was. There's communes today, friends. Train yourself to be godly. Do you think Ted Hager became that way overnight? Do you think Joe Osteen became that way overnight? Uh, the Bible says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little laying of your hands to rest. And poverty, lack will come on you like a thief. It, it, you know, the, the poverty of the word. The Bible says there was a time when they starved for the word of God. It will come on you so quick and you will follow deceiving teachings. And you won't even know you're deceived because your conscience has been seared. Come on, Samson, don't do that. Samson, don't, don't touch that jawbone. I, come on, I told you not to touch that. Come on, Samson, don't go drink wine with them. Samson, I told you not to drink wine. Samson, don't lay with women of foreign nations. I told you not to do that. Now, don't cut your hair, Samson. That's it. That's, that's, that's the last thing you got. It's the last thing of your Nazarite vow. Don't cut it, Samson. The Bible says he got up, shook himself like he did times before. He knew not. He knew not. That the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Do you think Hymenius and Alexandra knew that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from them? You think the oneness Pentecostals knew the Spirit of the Lord parted from their speaking in tongues more than us? Do you think they know that right now they're in danger of hellfire denying the very nature of God? Do you think Carlton Pearson, who went to Tulsa University, who became a universalist, denies the very existence of of hell? Do you think right now he believes he's going to hell? He doesn't even believe in hell. How do you go from from Tulsa, the Bible Belt, and Oral Roberts University as an African-American preacher to now teaching universalism? You need to train yourself to be godly. How do we do that? By the apostles' preaching, uh, teaching, and by the, the Word of God. Prayer and the fellowship of the saints. Verse 8, for physical training of the, is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Right now, we are an obese culture. Some of you need to work out. God bless you. Get out there and lose some weight. Amen? Nothing against losing weight. I need to lose about 50 myself. But it does have, it does have little value, but it's only little. You'll live longer, you'll be healthy, but you need to devote yourself to the spiritual training. I go to the gym, I look at all them big dudes, I say, I look like you spiritually, man. Come on, we, we, we as pastors ought to be the incredible hawks of the Word of God. And then verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here it is, write this down, trustworthy saying. And this is for what we labor and strive, and that we put our hope in the living God is. What is the trustworthy saying? Here it is in quotations. Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And you could just put what he's referring to. Who he's referring to. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That is a trustworthy saying today. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially 
of those who believe. Just to pick on the Calvinists a little bit more, all men mean all men. He is the Savior of all men, and especially to those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Have I commanded you today? Yes or no? Have I commanded you today to not go down the airs of, of heresy? Have I commanded you? Yes or no? Have I taught you today? Have you got more out of this chapel than some of your classes? Have you been taught today? Now, verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. We know he was a young man. We are young. We won't let anybody look down on you because you are young. But set yourself an example for believers in speech. Now, here's the things you must be an example of. And let's just stand together. I'll preach this next week. We'll take over at at point 11, verse 11. Today's message is doctrines of demons tomorrow. Uh, Next week will be be an example, and we'll list out those things to be an example. You can see them already there. Lilani, would you come, please? Praise God. Just because today involved a little bit more information than most chapels do, does anybody have any questions before we pray? I know I was all over the place because I just kept looking at you, looking at me, going, oh, I never heard this before. I know some of you haven't taken church history classes. That's why I tried to give you so much of it. Quickly, yes. What is the question? That sounds like a statement. I'm still hearing a statement. Is there a question? I don't believe you can. I've gone back and forth on that. I've gone back and forth. I don't believe you can. The question was, can you be oneness and saved? I I personally don't believe you can. If you can, it is a dangerous road to walk. And if they're still in it now, and they're hearing us tell them the Trinity, I, I, I can't go there. I could say if you don't know, you could be wrong in that possibly. But if you're informed, I don't see it any other way. Because modalism denies the incarnation of Christ. As much as they say that it doesn't, it denies the Father and the Son. The Father did not become flesh. You're denying who became flesh. The Son became flesh to serve His Father. It's a First John fallacy. You're denying the Father and the Son. You have to acknowledge both of them as persons. I have a problem with that personally. I do. I think they're great. I think God is using them. But I think they may be those that God says, I don't know you at the judgment. I'm being honest. That's what I believe. Pray for them. Because you don't know where they came from. That's probably why you think he's so nice. You don't understand. It was a heresy they went off into. And then if they don't believe in salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, I have to speak in tongues. That's not Christ alone. I have a problem with that now. Because he seems real nice and cute and cuddly, but the moment he teaches that doctrine, a demon will try to attach itself to that. Because if you can teach a legalistic doctrine, you will get people to miss heaven. You will teach a false doctrine. Well, they got in trouble for a lot less than that. Some of you guys are getting shocked today. I don't usually bring out my apologetic hat, but here it is today. What did Paul say to people who said, if you just add Jewish law to the face in Galatians? Christ is of no, the brother even knows the scripture. Come on, preach to yourself, preacher. What do you think he's going to say to them? You've not only added speaking in tongues to salvation, which was already enough to say if you added Christ is of no value, but then now you change the nature of God himself. At least these boys weren't denying the nature. They knew the Father and the Son. They knew him. And they knew the Spirit of God was one with the Father and the Son. I'm telling you, they deny the Father. That is a fallacy. That is a heresy. I cannot go there. I can't affirm that. Publicly, I denounce it in Jesus' name. Repent. All oneness believers, come back to Jesus. That is a, fair, that is a fallacy, and, it's, it's, and it comes with a pharisaical spirit. If you study the, the UPCs and those who teach that, it comes with a very pharisaical spirit. And today, many of them are getting set free, and your friend, Maybe in the gray line right now where God is dealing with him. Bring him out. Don't just see the worst thing we can do, and I'll get it from Michael Brown right here. Some people say, Don't preach the Jews. You'll turn them away. Let them stay in their Judaism, and in the end times they'll be saved. Michael Brown says, The worst type of anti Semitism is not to tell Jews to believe in Jesus and repent. 
And I'll tell you right now, the worst kind of love you could have for him is hidden love. And to not tell him. The Bible says open rebuke is better than hidden love. It's better for you to offend your brother and win a soul. Offend, you know you know what I'm saying? Then to be a friend to him and to let his soul go to hell. You need to be very honest with this guy. Say, man, I love you. I see you have a heart for Christ. The kingdom of God is nigh unto you. But you must accept him this way. You must worship the one God of Israel as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and salvation is by grace alone. Any other questions quickly? Good question would be, can a Catholic still be saved? In the Catholic Church? That's a good question. Thank you for asking that, Holy Ghost. Yes. I can't draw the line of the heresy that will separate them from Christ. But I would say if they're getting more in the saints and more into the Pope and all, yes, I don't think they're saved anymore. But, but, but can they be in that system? Yes, Martin Luther was in that system. Martin Luther was in that. I don't believe you can do that in the watchtower. I don't believe you I mean, obviously you can get saved and get out of it. But I do believe genuine salvation can be for those in Catholicism. And to their own hurt, to their own shame, you can basically be Catholic and be whatever else you want. There's Buddhist Catholic priests. There's homosexual Catholic priests. You know, there, I met a Catholic priest right down the road that said, I don't even agree with the Vatican on half of what it talks about. You'll meet Catholic You know what I'm saying? So uh, we have a brother in our church that came from Brazil. They were having youth meetings in the, uh, the Catholic church, speaking in tongues, charismatic, having nothing to do with the saints, winning their whole community. And they did that until the Catholic priest kicked them out. And then they went and started their own church. And he's in... Uh, Trinity Evangelical Seminary now. So absolutely, absolutely. If you have Catholic relatives, use everything you have to draw them to Christ. They, I mean, they got the they got the creeds. The problem with them is they added too much to it. And if it is that they're trusting in it for their salvation, Christ then becomes no value to them. They could be wrong, and I don't know where wrong goes. And Lord, I don't want to judge them. Because I know I'm wrong on things. And I'll find out when I get to heaven because if I knew I was wrong now, I wouldn't be wrong. Does that make sense? I'm not a liar. Okay? So I don't want to judge them severely because I don't want that same line of judgment to come on me. But I just hope that if they're wrong, that God will send them a preacher and they'll get out of that. Because then if they don't get out of it, now they're lying to themselves. And that's when the, the conscience gets seared. And that's when now we know they're a hypocrite and things, get, things go bad from there. I've actually had people say, well, we shouldn't even preach to them. Then. Let God just deal with them. If anybody's thinking that, that's what we need to do to you right now. Amen? Preaching only brings them closer to Christ. Preaching is the only way to get them out of that. Now, they can discover it from their Bible, but only preaching will actually pull them out. Amen? Father, we thank you today. It was a tough word. It came, God, through the humiliation of me as a pastor. Lord, I pray for a, a, a fresh voice, a fresh anointing for the three-hour class and lecture that I have to do now. But, Lord, even more importantly, we pray that this message of a turning from the faith and apostasy would be in each one of these people's hearts, each one of these future ministers, that, God, they would see it as Paul, you were saying it, to, uh, as, as Paul was saying it through, through you, Jesus, to Timothy, so that they would be trained up and commanded to, to be godly. I pray they'll hear what Paul's message was by your Spirit, God. That they'll never forsake the apostles' teachings, the prayer, and the gathering together of the saints. Let them preach sound doctrine. Oh, God, let them do it with all sincerity, never tiring, God. Lord, let them correct, rebuke, encourage, and exhort. I pray, Father God, for a church of sound doctrine, of faithful ministers to your word, who aren't afraid like me if we have to expose to expose error, even as Paul did. For the sake of your gospel, for the sake of your name, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Let's bless.